Good evening. Now I'm curious, did anyone else sing it in another language besides English or French? You did? What did you sing it in? You Spanish. Beautiful. I won't, I won't call you up here to, to sing a solo. If this is Eric Tonis, he would call on you to sing a solo right now. That's not me. I'm Kenny Clark. If you uh, haven't been with us this week and maybe you just got up here and uh, jumping into the fir- uh, tonight, uh, we're in night four here. We're landing the plane of a four weeks, a four night, I should say, um, a little series beholding the glory of Jesus um, toward the end of becoming like Jesus. Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that's how it works when he makes dead people alive by his grace. He gives us the spirit. And as we behold Jesus, we become like Jesus. He conforms us to the image of his son from one degree of glory to another. Uh, he erases the old man Adam in us and he restamps the image of Jesus on us so that more and more we reflect him. And uh, we've been doing this through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. So tonight, if you turn to Luke chapter 18, we'll get there in a moment. But I want to start us with a question. It's a rhetorical question from Romans chapter 8. To frame our time this morning in Luke chapter 18. That's Acts chapter 18. Let's try Luke chapter 18. And here's the question. In Romans 8.31, I'm sure this is a very familiar verse to many of you here, but maybe not to all of you. But he asks a rhetorical question, and it's this. If God is for us, maybe you can finish it. Who can be against us? Man, a powerful question. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's assuming for the sake of the argument by the time he gets to that point in Romans 8 that your answer to the first part is, yes, God is for me, and I know that. Because if God is for you, if he's on your side, you're good with God, you have peace with God that's secure. If that's true, um, no other enemy should cause you to fear. If God is for you, now you could answer, who could be against us? Well, some powerful enemies could be against you, but they're nothing in comparison to the God who's for you. But the second part is only true if the first part is true, right? If you are not confident that God is for you, then you cannot wholeheartedly say, well, who can be against me? So I want to begin tonight with a question that might seem maybe just just obvious, but I don't want to presume the first part of half of that question is true. Uh, On what basis are you confident that God is for you? I believe the Bible tells us that we can have a confidence that God is for us so that that question Paul asks us fires us up with assurance and hope. Um, But we can get the answer wrong to that question as we're going to see very quickly here in Luke 18 because Jesus told this parable we're going to look at tonight to some people who were very, very confident that they were good with God, that God was pleased with them. And they were very wrong. So we told them a story to try to open their eyes. Very stark contrast, Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. A parable about the basis by which we can say, yes, God is for me. Let me read it. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. I love Luke's gospel. So often he, he gives us a line and he says, here's why Jesus told that story. That's very helpful. <laughs> so he told this story to some. Here's who he really wanted to listen. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They looked down on others they perceived weren't righteous. So here's the story. 
two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I would like to pray specifically for our hearing of this parable right now. Lord, let's pray. Lord, Jesus told this parable because it is possible in any crowd, including this one here tonight in this room, that not all of us who walked into this room tonight walked in justified, accepted. But through these good words of Jesus, this story with the help of the Holy Spirit, it is possible that every one of us can walk out of this memorial chapel tonight justified and knowing it. Pray you'd help us understand with crystal clarity what is the only place this confidence can be found, that we'd see that it's in Jesus and why. And we ask this help in your name. Amen. All right, so I said, Luke tells us the main point right up front. That saves a lot of work for me. Here's the main point. Don't trust in yourself that you are righteous. And as a byproduct, then, treat others with contempt. Two men, two prayers, two results. To get us to stop and think that if we think our own righteousness is what makes us susceptible to God, we're wrong. And we're building our hope on a false confidence. Two men in the story, they each offer up two prayers and have two very opposite results. So, Let's start, look, look at the two men, verse 10. Now wait, let me pause here. For this parable to land, we need to forget some things that we learned last night. So last night, there were some Pharisees and tax collectors we talked about. And if many of you already grew, have grown up in the church, maybe even Sunday school, we are poised already to jump to the Sunday school answer at the very beginning of the parable and not let the parable land the way it would have when Jesus told it. Here's what I mean. If you've ever taught kids Sunday school, have you, has anyone ever taught children Sunday school, especially like elementary age Sunday school? Okay, you're going to get this. Correct me if I'm wrong. There is always one smarty pants kid in the class that whatever your illustration, your object lesson, usually that has a little twist to it, they're spotting it right from the beginning, and they're going to head you off at the pass, and they're going to say the answer before you even get there, right? There's always a kid. Caden uh, Tolkamp at our church, he and his wife Annie have been teaching third grade Sunday school the last two years. My wife, or my, my wife, my son Elijah, who's going into fourth, last year was in their class. And Caden, two years in a row, had this one lesson where he brings in a yellow banana, like a nice ripe banana, and then this old, like, almost ready for the trash brown banana. And he holds them both up for the kids. And he says, okay, which of these bananas is the good banana to eat? And almost all the kids say, which one do you think? Yeah, the yellow one, right? It looks ripe, looks like the one you want to eat. Almost all the kids take the bait and go for the other one. But there's that one kid the last two years who raises their hand and says, the brown one. 
because you can make banana bread, which was absolutely his point, right? He was going to then make the point that God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance, and this brown banana looks bad on the outside, but it's actually really good on the inside and totally ruined, his, you know, took, took the punchline out of his thing. So we can't do this with this parable and start already because we're already poised if you know the Gospels. As soon as it mentions a, tac- a Pharisee, you're like, boo, right? Boo, Pharisee, they're the bad guys. They want to kill Jesus, right? They're legalists. And tax collector, we've heard enough stories about tax collectors um, like this one that we're already poised to say he's going to be the good guy. That is not how this story would have been heard. At the beginning, when these two men are introduced, they were in opposite strata of the religious uh, uh, circles of their day. The Pharisee was the sect within Jewish religion, religious leadership that were that prized themselves as the most pious, the most fastidious at keeping the law in outward ways so that all looked up to them, admired them as the most devout, right? We get an idea in Matthew 23 of how they were viewed in Jesus' day, even though Jesus is calling them out for it being phony when he says, Pharisees love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Now, Jesus is blasting them for being phonies, but the very fact that he describes that that's how they're treated tells us how everyone would have heard the beginning of this story, right? Those are the, those are the honored guys, right? Those are the guys who you sort of bow to in the marketplace and say, rabbi? And no one would have expected the tax collector to be the good guy in this story. They were turncoats. They, they, had, they had turned against their own people and gotten rich off of their misery and poverty. They were so hated. Uh, Daryl Bach, who's a New Testament commentator, um, gives a few examples of the way that tax collectors were perceived by their fellow people. Listen to just a few. He says, a Jew who collected taxes was a disgrace to his family, expelled from the synagogue, and disqualified as a judge or witness in court. His word meant nothing. The touch of a tax collector would make your house unclean. Just the touch. Your whole house was unclean for having touched that guy. Jews were forbidden from receiving money, even alms, from a tax collector because their revenue was considered robbery. I mean, picture this, an alms. So here's a person begging at the city gates, and the tax collector comes by, and he's like, sorry, your money's not, no good here. Take your filthy money. I know I'm poor and begging at the gate, but I can't take your money. This one really kills me. Jewish contempt of tax collectors was epitomized in a ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity. Listen, God, you know, lying is a sin, right? God hates lying. But if it's a tax collector, you get a pass because, I mean, tax collectors, right? So at the beginning of this story, everyone was, thinks they know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, right? So we got to enter the story the way they would enter the story. No one would expect the tax collector to be the one that Jesus commands. So what do they do? They both go up to the temple to pray. Most likely, this would have been at one of two times of the day. Ever since God gave the law to Moses and instructed how they were to worship him and what was to be the goings-on at the temple, the tabernacle, and later the temple, there was a morning and evening sacrifice every day. 
A lamb would be slaughtered and burned in the morning and burned in the evening, and the smoke would rise up into the sky very vis- visibly. And at those two times of day, many of the people of Israel gathered in the temple courts to pray. And even the smoke going up is sort of this visual that our prayers are ascending to God, and he's hearing it on the basis of this sacrifice that covers our sin, right? We have access to, to, to ask God for help and to pray to him because this sacrifice has been given. And so this is the scene in the parable. It's not what you might picture like in a Catholic church where someone goes in kind of privately and lights a little candle and sits over the corner, and then the tax collector comes in, and he sits in the little corner. This isn't a private moment. This is a very public scene, right? Lots of people are here where these two guys have come to pray. And we get to their two prayers. Look at verse 11 through 13. Jesus doesn't just tell us what each man prayed, but describes their posture as they pray. Very interesting. Let's look at the Pharisee's posture. First, it says he's standing by himself. This is not because he's trying to be inconspicuous. He's standing by himself to be very conspicuous, to be seen probably like the Pharisees in Matthew 6 that Jesus called out for loving to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. This prayer is a, is a photo op for this, this Pharisee in the story. And he's probably not just standing by himself to be seen, but also to make it clear that he's set apart from everybody else, right? He's not like, he's, he's socially distancing <laughs> self-righteously to make sure he doesn't defile himself because he can't be too sure about how careful all these other people are as they've come into the temple courts to pray. He knows how careful he's been. So he stands apart, and then we get his prayer. And I'm going to use air quotes because I think he gets the first few words right. God, I, or no, he says, uh, how does his prayer start? I don't have my glasses on here. Um, God, I thank you. He's doing great there. And then it goes off the rails and turns from a prayer to um, boasting in himself before God. He's not praying, he's preening in the courts, temple courts. He's publicly admiring his own personal righteousness before others as he lifts his merits before God. That's what he's doing right here. He's not praying, really. And in his prayer, we see what the personal righteousness is that he's basing his full confidence on that God is for him. And it's a comparative righteousness when you listen to his prayer. He's not measuring himself against the standard of God's holiness. He's looking around at others, and he's comparing himself to them. And he comes out in his own eyes looking pretty good. His prayer, as I've, been, as I've thought about it, is the equivalent of him sending God a selfie. You know, you take a selfie. Everyone takes a selfie with the most flattering lighting and image, right? And you take about 10 of them to make sure which is the best one. His prayer is like a selfie where he takes it from the most flattering image to get all of his best features, and he even gets the tax collector right in the back corner just to, to, for contrast, right? So God really gets how righteous he is. Listen to what his righteousness consists of what he avoids, and what he goes out of his way to do. He avoids the sins of other men. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can we all agree that's a pretty low standard of righteousness? I mean, that's a pretty low bar to meet, right? Let's just make a list of the most heinous, obvious sort of egregious sins, say, haven't done any of those, A+. 
That's how he sees his righteousness. He stacks himself up next to the worst of the worst, and he says, I'm doing pretty good. And we haven't gotten to the good stuff that he's done yet. Look at the good stuff he's done. He's gone above and beyond the piety of other men. In his fasting and his giving, he says, you know, I fast twice a week. The law required that they fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. He says, 104 times a year, twice a week I fast. And Jesus, in in other places in the Gospels, describes the way they fast in the Sermon on the Mount in such a way that they go out in public and it's clear to everyone that they're hungry and they're going without and they're so devout for having fasting twice a week and everyone goes, wow. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything. Not just a tenth of the things that God required a tenth, but everything. So for example, going out in the marketplace and and buying some meat or some some grain or vegetables, and he wasn't required to tithe on that. The person who grew that grain or or raised that animal was required to tithe on that, but he's going to tithe on that anyway, just in case they didn't, right? I'm just going to make sure I'm going to tithe on everything I get, right? And he's patting himself on the back for these sort of going the extra mile with a few righteous, pious deeds, And unlike servants in another parable that Jesus tells, where at the end of the day, having done all they were commanded, they still say, we're still unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. This Pharisee is the complete opposite. He's patting his back uh, for a few major sins that he's avoided and a few ways he's gone above and beyond in his piety, and he thinks he's doing quite well with God. Thank you very much. Are any of you familiar with the poet Billy Collins? Anybody ever heard of Billy Collins? All right. Go look up Billy Collins later. I love his poetry. He's, he's an American poet. I can't remember what year, but one year he was the, uh, the U.S. Poet Laureate uh, awarded for the year. He's very clever. Um, and th- this poem in particular years ago was one of the first ones I read by him that made me want to read his stuff. It's called The Lanyard. And the first time I heard it, since then, I have, in my mind, associated it with this parable. And I'll explain why. I want to read it to you. It's not very long. The lanyard. Here, in case you don't know what he means by a lanyard, this is the sort of thing he has in mind here, all right? The poem is recalling a memory from his childhood at a camp. Here's how the poem goes. I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift from my mother. I'd never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one if that's what you did with them. But that didn't keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I'd made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life, milk from her breasts, And I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here's clothing and a good education, and here is your lanyard, I replied which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here's a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. 
And here I wish to say to her now as a smaller gift, it's not the worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took that two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. Can you see the Pharisee in this parable standing there in the temple courts proudly with his lanyard? He's just as sure as he can be that these sins that he avoids and these pious deeds that he goes a little above and beyond are more than enough to make him right with a holy, righteous God as he measures himself against the unrighteousness of a select group of others. God, thank you that I'm not like these other men. Just look at my lanyard. And Jesus looks right through his lanyard as he's patting himself on his back for micro-tithing through his spice rack and neglecting weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, Here's a caution for all of us right now, myself included. It would be very blind-sighted, log-eyed for us right now to be thinking, God, thank you that I'm not legalistic and self-righteous and arrogant or judgmental like this Pharisee. So friends, are there ways in which you are measuring your personal righteousness by some similar sort of scale, grading yourself on the curve, looking horizontally at others, whatever those select groups, select sins that you're avoiding, select good deeds that you are particularly giving it your best shot, and, and hopefully coming up with a combination of the two that make you feel pretty good to stand before God. Are you avoiding a list of your sins? Maybe I'm not a sex trafficker or a terrorist. I'm not scamming the elderly on the internet. God, thank you that I'm not like them, right? And you're going above and beyond some things. I go to two services on Sunday. I serve one service, and then I attend worship one. And I sing loud, right? I give. I don't just give to the general offering at my church. I actually, we support other missionaries privately. Have you seen the magnets on my refrigerator? We serve quite, we, we, we give to quite a few. I read through the Bible every year, the New Testament twice. You just fill in your list of the things that you might be tempted to think, man, God is pretty pleased with this. But the problem with comparative righteousness is it's defined by sinners, other sinners, right? And not the standard of God's righteousness. For me to think that I'm righteous before God because I'm a little better than my neighbor is like me thinking I'm closer to the sun because I'm two feet taller than my son Elijah. I mean, that's just ridiculous, right? I'm, making, I'm comparing by the wrong standard, and so is this Pharisee. It's not how your righteousness stacks up next to any neighbor, but how it stacks up next to the God who's holy, holy, holy. That is the basis of righteousness that God is looking for. Are you righteous like I'm righteous? We need to see the chasm between God's holiness and our fallenness. Psalm 130, verse 2. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Right? Romans 3. None are righteous, not one. No one seeks for God right? All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our righteousness will never commend us or make us right before God. So what about the tax collector's prayer? How does the brown banana pray? Look at his posture. 
He's standing far off. Even his location in the temple courts, he is trying to be inconspicuous. He recognizes how unworthy he is not just to draw near to God, but be even dissociated with God's people in a public place. It's amazing he's here at all in this scene. And as he's standing far off, trying not to be noticed, he couldn't even look up toward heaven. He couldn't even bring his eyes to that smoke rising up into heaven from this sacrifice because he understands the chasm between himself and the holy God that he's come to pray for is so great. He can't even look up. He feels more despicable than everyone else in that crowd if they recognized, hey, a tax collector's here, would have thought of him. He actually sees himself as more despicable. And he beats his breast, this physical sign of anguish, I think, that what is ultimately wrong is deep inside here, right? All this sin that comes out of me is because of this sin that's inside me. Unlike this Pharisee who sees no gap that needs to be covered, I'm just good with God, all this tax collector sees his gap. And he humbles himself in his posture, and then his short and sweet prayer... You might expect in Jesus' story, after the Pharisee lists his reasons he thinks he is righteous, that this man might just start pouring out a list of all the reasons he feels so sinful. But Jesus tells the story, and it's this one simple little sentence. He doesn't list a single particular act of sin. He just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or literally, the sinner, he says. He goes right to the heart of the matter. I just don't need sins I've committed forgiven. I am a sinner. It's who I am. Have mercy on me. Every sin I've ever committed comes out of this heart that is corrupt. I lead worship a lot, so I often think in hymns. It's like people who speak a second language and they dream in Spanish or whatever. I kind of think in hymn lyrics. I can't help myself. And so as we finish tonight, a few times I'm going to call on some hymns here to help us out. But there's a hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, that has this little bit, this is this guy right here, that we sing, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. That's this guy right here. He sees the gap. It's massive. He can't imagine that that could be spanned or filled. His only hope is that God is merciful, and that's his prayer. Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. And I want to argue that Jesus' wording here implies that he has a particular kind of mercy, not just a general have mercy in mind, but a specific. He's crying out to God for an atoning, forgiving mercy. And here's why I think so. Look just a few verses later in chapter 18, down in verse 37. Just a few little sections later, there's this scene with Jesus and this blind beggar, and Jesus comes along the road, and the beggar hears that Jesus is coming, and twice, it's almost the exact same words in your English Bible, he yells out from the side of the road, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. You'd think in the same chapter here in Luke, these two stories, it would be the identical word mercy, but it's not. The word mercy is just this general word that the, the blind beggar, eleison, just show me mercy. But this word that, that comes out of the tax collector's mouth that Jesus puts in his mouth in this prayer is this word that's only found in one other place in the New Testament. 
uh, that specifically has to do with a particular kind of mercy, and that is God's anger being turned away because a propitiation has been made. It's in Hebrews 2.17, where it said, Christ became a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people, or he became a merciful and faithful high priest to show mercy in this particular way by making atonement, bearing the wrath that that sin deserves upon his shoulders so that it doesn't have to fall on you. Now here in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus still hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't risen from the grave yet. He hasn't ascended yet. The Spirit hasn't been poured out on the church on guys like Paul and Peter who begin putting it all together and explaining and helping us understand like this doctrine of being justified by faith, right? But the seeds of it are right here in this simple little prayer from the tax collector when he says, have this particular kind of mercy on me. Um, This is how I imagine what what is in his mind as he's praying the way Jesus puts it. I think we're to picture this guy standing far off in the temple and his smoke from the daily sacrifice is rising from the sky and he's eking out this little prayer, God, have mercy on me. His prayer is really saying, God, is there a mercy great enough to provide a sacrifice that can cover my sin? He doesn't believe it. Got another hymn for it. Charles Wesley. I think this captures his sin. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Maybe for others, but is there a mercy that can cover my sin? Can my God, his wrath, forbear me, the chief of sinners, spare? I've long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not listen to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. Do you ever feel like that? That's how this guy felt, this tax collector. And that was his prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is there mercy that can cover the greatness of my sin? Two very different men, two very different prayers and opposite results. Look at how Jesus says these two men left the temple. Speaking to this second man, the tax collector, I tell you, this man went down from his house to his house justified, declared righteous, considered right with God. That guy went home and God was for him. Rather than the other, this Pharisee that everyone would have assumed was perfectly right with God. Why? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to think about these two results and start with the Pharisee. He didn't go home resulted, uh, justified or accepted. This one who stood by himself proudly separating from other men, he left that temple still separated from the very God that he thought he was right with. Because the mercy he needed, he didn't think he needed. I don't know. I mean, maybe you're all here at Hume Lake for a week and come to the Hume Teaching Series because you all understand your righteousness is found in Christ alone. But maybe not. I don't want to presume that. Maybe hearing this story, you're realizing, I I think I've been resting my hope that I'm right with God on something that starts with because I and not because Christ. That's why the Pharisee didn't go home justified. He thought he had him made. And the first most basic application for you from this story would be trade in your your lanyard for Christ's. That's the gospel. Your Your lanyard can never cut it. But Christ came to offer a lanyard that could. If anyone ever had a lanyard, a righteousness that pleased God, 
that turned away wrath and invited the smile of God. It was Jesus, the sinless son of God, born, suffering the consequences of our sin, obeying the father to his last breath for a righteousness that could be counted to us that we don't deserve. And his cross helps us understand the gap rightly. If any man had a worthy lanyard, it was Jesus. If any man ever deserved God to vindicate him, it was Jesus. But as he hung on the cross, after being betrayed and abandoned and denied and condemned and spit upon and mocked and crucified, and God did nothing and let him die. It was to provide a lanyard that we all need. Do you think Christ would have gone through all that if your lanyard could cut it? <laughs> I don't think so. There's another song. Here we go. I told you, I, I think in songs. This one, I love Sovereign Grace Music. This is a newer hymn, but they wrote a whole album from the Gospel of Luke, and one of their songwriters with this parable sat and tried to think and imagine if a Pharisee heard that story that day and was cut to the heart and repented of their hollow righteousness, what sort of prayer might they offer up? If that Pharisee suddenly prayed like the tax collector, how might they pray? And it was like this. Maybe Nolan, you can help me. There it goes. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. I mean, here that it's repenting of your righteousness. That's what needs to be repented of. That's how a Pharisee can go home justified tonight. Look at the tax collector who did go home justified. The one who stood far off was brought near to God, whose mercy he knew he didn't deserve. That's the irony in the end of this parable. The one who was trying to be inconspicuous, that's the one God saw and heard his prayer, and he went home right with God. He was the one who humbled himself, who Jesus says was exalted. One application. Maybe tonight, that's you. You, you, you hear the tax collector's prayer and how he sees himself, and that's exactly how you see yourself. Maybe you've never with God come to him like the tax collector and said, maybe you've, up until this point in your life, you're just not sure you can really honestly approach God with that kind of humility. And the ta tax collector leads the way of how, how we come to God and get right with God, right? We acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge that it's not just things that we've done, it's who we are. And that we need who Christ is and what he's done to cover who we are and what we've done. And we cry out just like that song, God, be merciful to me. But I was also thinking probably up here, maybe it's more likely that many of us here can so identify with the feeling of unworthiness of this tax collector and his self-loathing that maybe that's something you regularly struggle with as a Christian. Like in terms of last night, when you imagine God's face as he's carrying you home, it's not rejoicing, it's not smiling, it's disappointed. It's buyer's remorse. There can be a way in which we identify with this tax collector, a form of humbling oneself that I think can actually stay in a bad place, so focused on the size of the gap between us and God that we actually don't look to the cross 
We just sort of wallow in our sinfulness. I think that's just a lanyard of a different color. In other words, we can go in this sort of tax collector direction, but not look up and cry out for God's mercy, but say, I don't even deserve it, God, unless I can repent well enough, <laughs> show you I can do better, then maybe I can and come to you. But we can sort of be a Pharisee looking like a tax collector. Does that make sense? But Jesus said the one who humbles himself will be exalted, will be welcomed and accepted and beloved. And there's a way that even as Christians, we can sort of refuse to let Jesus exalt him. I know that you've forgiven me, God, but I can't forgive myself. And it's just a form of pride on the inside that resists God saying to you on the basis of Jesus, no, let me lift you up. You're forgiven. You're mine. You're welcomed. There's a way of being a Pharisee but looking like a tax collector. I think that our Pharisaical impulse, our self-justifying instinct, our desire to have something to contribute this part of it, even if it's mostly Jesus but a little bit me, there's something deep within us. The whole letter to the Galatians is because of this impulse, right? Right? He wrote it to them because he was seeing these people who had understood it's by grace I'm saved through faith. But then he says, why are you deserting him who called us in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which really isn't one? It was a gospel of Jesus plus observing some of these works. And he says, no, that's going in the wrong direction. Do you think that what was begun by the spirit, he says, now you perfect it by the flesh? He says, no, we keep living by faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We look to the cross. Not only does the, the cross help us understand how big the gap of our sin is. We look at the cross, we say, oh, that's what we deserved? Oh, that's how serious our sin is? It works in reverse, too. As your awareness of the chasm between God's holiness and your sinfulness grows, and maybe it leads you to feel like the tax collector, like I can't approach God, we need to let the cross grow as big as the gap and realize the cross has always been bigger than the gap. It's just that we, our understanding of the gap has grown the longer we've walked with Jesus. The cross is one size fits all. It just keeps expanding to the size of the record of your debt. He gave his life for you while you were still a sinner, before any of the record of debt that you racked up. If you're tempted to fear, I was thinking about this as I was walking around the lake today. If you're tempted to fear some days that the cross just isn't big enough for your gap, you've got to remember Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's millions of people's lifetimes of sin. If the cross is big enough to atone for a world of sinners, I'm pretty sure he's got your sin covered, right? So if you're a believer and you struggle with this pattern of you gotta put yourself back in the basement or the doghouse and you only feel like you can lift your eyes up to God on your good days, guess what? Your good days aren't all that great either and neither are mine. Some of our good days are the ones we need to repent of first because we're patting ourselves on the back and they're not as good as we think they are. But for those of you who might struggle, this might be a regular struggle for you. You sort of live in that far-off tax collector place and you actually resist Jesus exalting you and saying, no, understand who I say you are in Jesus and rest in it. I got one last hymn for you. Charles Wesley. Arise, my soul, arise. This is one of those hymns that you're supposed to sing to yourself, by the way. 
You know that not all songs you sing to God. Some songs are written to sing directly to God. Some songs we're supposed to sing to one another. And then some uh, hymns and songs are written for us to sing to ourselves when we forget and don't believe. And this is one of those kind of hymns that Wesley wrote. He says, arise, my soul, arise. That means get up off the ground. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety, my certainty, my confidence that God is for me stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. If you need to hear that tonight, hear that. So, with fresh confidence this tonight, rightly grounded on the basis of Jesus alone, his perfect life, his sacrificial death as the spotless lamb of God to provide you with the righteousness that you never could have. I want to close where we began with Paul's words from Romans 8. Now that we understand clearly where is this righteousness on which we can trust that God is for us. So then Paul's words are amazingly reassuring. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Can we stand? I would love for us to close by singing this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole? Nothing but, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. One more verse. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus.